Hey, Billy, I'm wondering, have you been looking for a way to get better as a coach? Uh, always. That's good because you could do it by using GMS Plus. It's a great resource for courses, drills, stats, videos, tips, and much more. Many of the game's winningest coaches and players, including Heather Olmstead, Keegan Cook, John Spira, Mike Wall, and Courtney Thompson, have used it or are a part of it. They're also actually have been former guests, so you know they're good. Personally, I've learned a lot from Gold Medal Squared, as have many of our guests. So if you're looking to win a state championship or an Olympic gold medal, GMS Plus will help you get there. Get 20% off an annual subscription today. Go to goldmedalsquared.com backslash CYBO and enter CYBO. That's goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO and enter coupon code CYBO. Welcome to Motor Learning for Coaches. This show features Casey Kreider, Harjeev Singh, Andy Bass, and John Mayer. The mission of this project is to bring motor learning theory out of the lab and into your practice and game space. After one listen, you'll be ready to coach your brains out. All right, we're back with Motor Learning for Coaches, and uh, now we've got Andy Bass taking the lead. Before we get into the topic, I know, Andy, you just finished your second year in the big leagues, so congrats on that. That's, that's no joke. Uh, would you say the season was a success for the Pirates? Anybody that looks at ESPN or the Pirates website would look at another 100 losses and say, how could there possibly be success this year? And yet the eternal optimist and mental skills coach in me would say yes, that there's a lot of things to look forward to. A lot of things happen this year out of our control. But I know um, Harjeev on the call, the Magic, have a lot of really young talent in their organization. And the same is true for the Pirates. So I think it's interesting to look at the, the trajectories of each individual organization and seeing what could happen with the Magic and the Pirates the next couple of years is going to be fun to see. Yeah, I know who I'm pulling for in, in both the NBA and Major League Baseball. So let's get a prediction now on the record. How many, how many uh, wins next season? I'm going to really take the, uh, the easy way out here. I think our statisticians have us projected around 72 to 75 wins. Okay. And it, last year it was closer to 60? Yes, correct. Okay, nice. Better is good. Better is good. All right. So uh, we have, uh, I know you had Franz Bosch and, and crew with you, and this is kind of a new concept for you, but it'll be fun for us to all learn alongside you. Um, Definitely. You had this topic of attractors and, and queuing. So can you take us into that? Certainly. So with the caveat that this is new for me as well, and I will never be on the level of Franz Bosch, but some context to this, we had a skills summit at Pirate City a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about how we cue certain parts of the body. And Franz mentioned that cueing in a tractor may not be as externally cueing in a tractor. So saying, hey, make sure that you're providing some external cue that has to do with the knee or the hips or the elbow or whatever it may be. Like if it's something with the foot, you know, use their, your, their shoe or something, or their shoelace, something that's not the body. But he said that cueing in a tractor may not be as beneficial as cueing a fluctuator. And that was really interesting. And I had never thought about it that way. And for those listening, um, John, you may add that, that image to the website, but if people are just listening to this, the kind of a metaphor for an attractor is if I've got a, a pillowcase and there's a bowling, there's a billiard ball in that pillowcase. And if I have the pillowcase stretched really tight, so now the billiard ball, anytime I do anything with my hands, the billiard ball is going to move uh, because that, that's a fluctuator. It's not a very ingrained movement. But then if I bring my hands closer together, and now that pillowcase kind of has a really deep valley in it, 
and that billiard ball is down there. Now, if I shake my hands, the billiard ball won't move as much because it's, well, in this situation, it's literally in a deeper cavern, a deeper well, but it's, that is more of what the attractor looks like. So an attractor in a movement pattern doesn't have a lot of fluctuators. It doesn't move a lot. When I say it doesn't move a lot, it doesn't vary a lot because it's been so ingrained in the movement pattern. Certain attractors could be like in track and field, a foot plant from above. That's something that we hear. That's a very, that's an attractor state where the body is very stable. It could be a hip lock. Uh, I'm gonna allow people to kind of go down the Google rabbit hole to look more into those because they're very much more of a visual image. So what he was saying, and if we buy into the idea in ecological dynamics that we wanna add information, we wanna add noise into the system, then cueing a part of a movement that doesn't have a lot of noise because it's so deeply ingrained may not be as effective because there's not as much information to cue there versus if I'm a batter in baseball, perhaps cueing, if I'm a right-handed batter, cueing my left foot, which would be the foot plant from above a tractor, may not be as beneficial an external cue as perhaps asking me to cue something about my top batting glove, thinking about striking down on the baseball. That's more of a fluctuator. That's a, a part of the movement that varies a lot. And so by cueing that movement that varies a lot, we're getting more information. And to wrap this up, even thinking about an external cue that's more of a goal. So if I'm a volleyball setter and I have a very, very, very small part of the court on the other side, that whole focus small, miss small, that's my external goal. Well, there's going to be a lot of variability in me hitting that one spot. I'm going to be hitting all areas around there. So I'm getting a lot of information from that one specific external goal that varies a lot because it's so difficult to execute. No different than a batter trying to hit it off the 350 foot sign in center field. Probably not going to do that on every swing. And so because I'm using that, that external goal that maybe not be a movement attractor, but it's there, it's not moving as much. There's a lot more information with that external cue. Would um, maybe Harjee, if you could start us out, would you say attractors are universal? Like we'd see this in all like athletes when they take on a sport. And then I guess, do they develop because a coach at an early age is saying, hey, this is how you're supposed to move. This is where you put your foot. Or is it something that's more just because you give someone a goal, they're going to they're going to emerge. I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. Um, obviously, I'm a big fan of, you know, kind of self-organization and, and, and emergence that way. But I think like to an extent, of course, I think if you you know, think of development as like a, just like just a straight line and then over the years, you are going to develop certain, you know, levels of attractors depending how deep they are, how not deep they are, they're still going to keep developing. It's like, you know, when you get to the big leagues, like technically you've been shooting the same way for so many years before you got to the NBA or you've been hitting a certain way before you got to the MLB serving a certain way before you got to college ball. Like you've developed attractor states. Now the point is, uh, I think that's like when you start to really develop skill at a higher level, it's what attractor states, uh, what attractor states matter more, matter less. Um, and then how can we use fluctuators to help develop uh, whatever set of tractor states that you know we're we're trying to, to to develop and this is where like i think the external focus on the fluctuators is so important because it allows you to self-organize um and i think like we just published we just did a study that's going to be um just got accepted into the journal of sports science where 
you know, we did the, we did exactly that where it's like uh, we looked at the distance of, you know, the external focus and the farther you get in terms of the distance. And this was skilled volleyball servers this is like division one volleyball servers. And it's like the farther you get their synergy index is higher, meaning they self-organize better. Um, so I think that's like a basic insight into saying, and, and then the closer you get, so like the more distal, the better, more proximal, you get a little bit less and internal, you kind of don't get anywhere. So it's like, we saw the progression and like, I'm curious now, I mean, as a coach, like it, it's more of a question, like how do you develop those attractor states when they come to you? Like, where, where do you start? Like, that's like the, I think that's the, like the golden question, but um, a little off topic, but I think like, that's kind of what I think. Well, congrats. Go ahead, Andy. Arjeev, you, you just sparked something that I know we had spoken about prior to this episode, but just coaches understanding movement and what is an attractor in your sport? There are certain attractors like foot plant from above and hip lock, but that's why it's so important for coaches to look at donor sports, sports that have similar movements to your sport. So in tennis, look at track and field and vice versa. It's so important for us to know what these stable states are in our movements to be able to then cue the appropriate fluctuator to deepen that well of attraction. Casey, help us out. What are some attractors in our sport? Oh, gosh. Um, probably need to spend some time with Harjeev and, and uh, uh, sorting that out. I think that there's some elements uh, when you talk about spiking this uh, trunk rotation um, is going to, there's some aspect of that that's probably going to be present for most successful spike attempts, you know, whatever that, however you define that. Um, you could get really loose, you know, with this idea, I think receive and serve, um, it, it's attractive to use both arms, not just one. <laughs> and, uh, that tends to happen pretty quickly as you climb the ladder and, and it's pretty stable. Um, so they, they exist. Um, here's the thing, when I think of attractors, um, one of the terms that, that comes to mind, and this is probably a little bit, um, of conflation on my part, but I think of this idea of invariance like invariant features. And uh, the word is a little harsher than attractor. Um, but here's my thoughts. Like, hey, coaches are notorious, myself included, but we're notorious for saying this has to be present for success to occur. And we say that far more often than it's actually true. <laughs> and uh, so if you think about something like an invariant feature of movement, an invariant feature of serving or setting or whatever, let's say it's truly invariant that for it to, for, for success to be possible, this must be in place. Um, I don't know that, like, I, I, to me, that is parallel to the idea that we shouldn't be queuing attractors because if it actually, like, all you'd have to say there is figure out a way to be successful and that, that invariant feature will pop up. Like, we don't have to say that you need to do it. Just say your goal is X, Y, and Z. If you satisfy the task demands and this feature of movement is, is genuinely Invariant. It is impossible to achieve the task goal without this feature movement. It will be there. We don't have to draw your attention to it. It will. It will pop up. And that that little paradigm or that lens, whatever you want to call it, for me has been really helpful in the sense that like uh, it's okay to draw their attention to movement outcomes or movement effects if we want to get into the idea of an external focus of attention. Um, because if you follow that thread of logic, then all the truly invariant features will become present, uh, in my opinion, relatively quickly, whatever that time scale may be. Um, 
but I think we as coaches like identifying and uh, pretty forcefully prescribing what I would call like false invariants. This must be present for you to have success. It, it doesn't. I mean, most of the biomechanical analysis that's going on now uh, would suggest that those, those features are probably far less in number than we as coaches pretend uh, that there are. And, um, so from a coaching standpoint, uh, whether it's volleyball or otherwise, I, I'm on this train. I, I really, it's helping uh, me understand this idea of queuing uh, fluctuators versus attractors is, is really, I'm really curious about that. It feels, uh, like there's a lot of meat there in terms of development as a coach. Now here, I do have a question for Andy or RJ, you can jump in as well, but this idea of queuing fluctuators, are we queuing a, a specific prescribed variation in that fluctuator, or are we just trying to draw their attention to uh, manipulating that variable that is that is going to have an impact and, and will change, and, and uh, so as to promote self organization, or is this like, hey, this top batting glove needs to do X, Y, and Z uh, for it to be successful? Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. It is a cue, not in the sense of prescribing movement, but pr using a tra say traditional external cue of, hey, imagine your top batting glove slicing through the zone. Um, so it is not cueing from a specific prescriptive perspective. It's cueing in the traditional sense of an external cue or even a holistic cue, but it's cueing to the sense of, hey, just think about this occurring, but it's not a deliberate specific movement pattern. Yeah, that, that to me makes a lot of sense in terms of like uh, all we're doing is shifting their focus of attention. Right? Well, not the only thing, but in, in large part, if we draw their attention to this top batting glove, then we're getting them to just make changes there, which is going to promote variation. And uh, that in, in effect is, is a version of exploration. My, my biggest thing for me as, as, a, as a coaching lunatic at times, I would want that batting glove to be, I would want that bandwidth of, of exploration to be fairly large um, just in terms of like, okay, what if you, what if you went down on the ball twice as much, or what if you flatten it out completely? And uh, in an effort to get them to explore. Um, but it just, there's something about this idea of hewing fluctuators um, that feels parsimonious, if that makes any sense. It feels really, um, it, it makes sense to me uh, from a lot of the, the theoretical stuff that I tend to gravitate towards. So I am really intrigued by it. Feels parsimonious. I was about to say, word of the day goes to Casey Kreider. <laughs> I was a journalism major. That's all I just, got, you know. I was just Googling parsimonious. Harji, have you had something to add there? I think this is where, like, um, every, I think all coaches can do a better job in all sports. Um, obviously, in, in, you know, coming from, coming from a volleyball background, I think, like, the constraints alert approach is we talk about it a lot. I think the application of it is so powerful. Um, most of the times, not necessarily, you know, doing it the you know i guess i don't want to say the right way but we're you know oftentimes it's confused with like just playing the game um and i think that's where like constraints of our approach can really help in, in you know in targeting the fluctuators um and and i think like that's something that coaches should try to understand and gravitate towards um 
I just think like the the concepts behind it and how it relates to again targeting the fluctuators and you know all the stuff we've talked about. Um, there, there's a lot in there that we can really benefit from, um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of where we're all. And I and I do agree. Like, you know, the I think like you know along the lines of like practice design, coaches should also like think about queuing design, and they should also think about like can I get the same outcome or yeah, the same outcome with the different words that I use? Um, like I said, like, you know, in the study that we did, like, you know, these players were fairly accurate with their serving despite the cue that we used, uh, whether it was proximal or distal, obviously the methodology we use was, was what the paper was about. But I'm saying, all I'm saying is that like, we think about practice and we think about different ways we can run the drill or whatever, start thinking about the bandwidth of the cue that you use and how you can get the same outcome or whatever outcome you want to get uh, using different sort of cues and what are those cues and how they relate to the skill and, and stuff like that. Um, so it takes a little bit of more back end work, but I think like that's really um, interesting because one player might gravitate with one cue and the other, you know, not so much. So, yeah. That was a question I had. I know cues are constraints, but more traditionally, like maybe changing uh, something in the environment or or a task, uh, would you want to constrain towards fluctuators or with or fluctuators in mind, or is it still, or is it more towards attractors? Andy, do you have a thought on that? I think it goes back to something that Casey mentioned that if we're constraining toward a movement outcome, then we will be inherently constraining attractor states. Um, so I, yes, I, I would say that that's, it will happen if we're constraining the movement properly. And once again, constraining, not mean inhibiting, but right. providing a bandwidth for exploration, right. doing something in the environment that explores the movement space to deepen that attractor well by exploring fluctuations. And I, as I was listening, and I could see as a coach, I'm hearing you guys say, okay, so there's these invariant features of these attractor states that, you know, are basically paramount that have to happen for us to perform skills. And you guys are telling me not to talk about it and not to coach that, or, or it sounds almost just like they're just going to happen. And to me, I'm like, well, if they're going to happen, like, let's make them the best they could possibly be. And let's, let's focus on them. And it's not just okay for them to happen and be average. Is there a way to improve these attractor states or is that the wrong way to think about them? There absolutely is. And I'll bring up a, a specific constraint in baseball. We want pitchers to have this foot plant from above where their foot is almost grabbing the ground like an elite track athlete. A really good way to constrain to that movement is to put them in a sand pit. There's a wall 15 feet in front of them, put a strike zone on the wall and have them do a crow hop where they basically almost skip into the throw and their job is to throw a strike into this target that's been drawn on the wall. But because they're in sand, in order to complete the drill, they have to put, they have to perform this elite foot plant from above because of the different levels of the, as the sand moves. So we're not talking about foot plant from above, but the constraint is set up. The drill is set up to deepen that attractor foot plant from above. That's a good example. Casey, could you think of a way moving forward you'll, maybe cue or constrain a fluctuator with maybe having in mind that it'll help an invariant feature. I don't know if that even makes sense, but uh, yeah, I guess, how would you apply this to a practice? Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit uh, cheating, uh, but I, 
man, I like differential learning. I like it more and more every time uh, I am, you know, confronted with trying to solve, help solve the movement problem for some, or help them in terms of activities and solve a movement problem for somebody. Um, and so I, I would, uh, you know, when it comes to um, like attacking or something like that, I would manipulate a lot of variables around attacking like ball weight. You know, I would, uh, I would use, we pretty liberally use volley lights for a lot of what we do uh, in kind of in, in random uh, fashion. Like we just introduced them randomly. Uh, we'll also use, you know, um, for example, um, the, the one that I think of that we've had a lot of success with is, is setting. So we manipulate the ball weight a lot, not systematically. We just randomly manipulate the ball weight. And um, one of the things that uh, we were having a tough time with one of our athletes doing was setting overhead, just just was not going well, was not accurate. We were not meeting the task demands very well. It seemed like there was some uh, attractive stuff in their movement that was limiting their ability to do that. And, uh, so we just started tossing her basketballs, men's basketballs, women's basketballs, volleyballs, beach volleyballs, different brands of volleyball, uh, volley lights, the center ball. And, uh, it was, it was actually kind of cool. It's really, really, uh, a big moment for me as a coach. The change uh, happened pretty quickly to where all of a sudden this setting overhead, um, became much smoother and much more accurate. And could I point to exactly what the the change in a tractor was? I'm not smart enough to do that. I don't have the fancy uncontrolled manifold stuff and motion tracking and stuff like that. But I do know that the ball went the the, the target way more often, and uh, she felt uh, pretty quickly. She felt more comfortable, um, and it, visually it looked different, you know. And uh, we could get into the specifics of back setting if we wanted to. It'd be kind of boring, but. Um, that was an ex uh, a lived example that we used was just manipulating. I, I, I'm a big proponent of manipulating the ball a lot, uh, the ball weight a lot, because I think what it does is it, it, uh, by doing that, it forces your attention to, uh, information that, that remains, uh, relevant regardless. Like here's an orb flying through space and, uh, it, there's some things that remain true regardless of its weight. And there's some things that change. We don't want them on the stuff that changes. We want their attention on that one variable and learning how to engage with that variable. So um, is that example what you were looking for? Or Yeah, just in, and it probably doesn't matter, but what would be the attractor in that situation? And what's the, what are some fluctuators? Um, I think uh, for for us, there was a, I, I, it's hard for me to say attractor or not, but we wanted this ball position, like the relationship that she had with the ball to remain relatively consistent. That's that's in for a couple of reasons, not not the most important, but one of the things is just some deception from the for the opponent standpoint. And uh, she liked to turn her body a little bit early and, and lean back pretty quick. Well, that that had a negative effect, even on just putting the ball, you know, on target in, in rhythm. And, uh, but when we started introducing this, uh, and I don't know why I didn't cue her to not turn early or not lean back when we started introducing this, um, very quickly, the ball remains in front of her and, uh, it just looked like when she would set it to the middle and to the left and now setting to the right, it looked very similar. Um, I can't tell you exactly why that adaptation occurred. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I wish I knew. Um, but I do know that um, this, the attractor that we liked for lots of reasons, 
was this ball that was in front of her with a neutral, you know, I don't know, spine angle. I don't like talking about the body too much, but her, her spine remaining relatively neutral. And when we started doing this almost immediately, she was upright, neutral. She faced, you know, forward, not turning towards the net or anything like that. And she, the ball was in front of her and it didn't matter which ball she was using. The second that we, you know, went back to, you know, for a couple of days, just regular volleyballs, this movement started to creep back in and it took some time of, of having her engage with these, but we got her to where she could uh, stay neutral ball in front and then set left, middle and right all relatively same without losing any sort of, you know, performance goal outcome consistency. And I guess the coach would say, well, it only works when you change the balls. Then it's, if she can't do it when there's a normal ball, like what's, where's the transfer there? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's one of the things that I think like the constraints led stuff needs to contend with is like, well, if movement isn't at all memory based or it's not, uh, there's no, programming element to it then what happens if, if all it is is just changing conditions uh then what happens when the conditions change back and don't they just revert and um so i think the theory all the theory is probably incomplete because what we did is we just had her engage with that for a couple of weeks every day 10 minutes before practice she would just be setting a bunch of different types of of balls and <clears throat> um sure enough uh, about two weeks in uh you reliably when we were playing against opponents or when we were playing against, you know, in a, in a chaotic six on six situation, she would looked exactly how she did when she was uh, engaging in that. So some adaptation occurred. Um, or maybe a more stable attractor, right? Is that yeah, attunement? Exactly. Whatever we want to call it, something happened yeah. to where it, it stuck. It was yeah. sticky enough that, that as we play, uh, it's still there. Uh, and we go back to it. So I don't want to pretend like we just did it. And then back we're done. Like we, introduce it now it's frequently no but we do bring it up occasionally and just to kind of like check the oil and water a little bit Arjeev, do you have something there i think it's probably a later point but i i think like to your recent uh point about like transfer i think we have to start getting away from the concept of like oh did it transfer to the game i think like i've heard that way too many times to like come to the point come to the conclusion that like we don't know what transfer is um and it, it's not that the and that's another question right does the practice design transfer does the skill execution transfer uh what transfers is it information that's transferring which i think it is uh, I, i'm a big information transfer um because that kind of goes along with cases point of like you know the setting you know it was the information that transferred um not so much the design of you know um in terms of like the different balls of course they're different balls because we're trying to get the information right um and you know so the people that come in and say oh it's not the real ball or whatever like i feel like that's like and this is again where like coach education needs to like i think change a little bit um and, uh, you know, with, I think with all sports, um, just because, you know, with our volleyball background, even volleyball, I think, I, I think we are, the education behind transfer is just not there yet. Um, and so that's just kind of my, like, academic speak, I guess. But, like, yeah, that's kind of where, where I'm uh, Ready to start I'm a fight. Happy. Yeah, I feel yeah. like transfer is <laughs> big. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. uh, we'll have to do a topic uh, on that. Andy, you mentioned... Uh, in when you emailed about it the importance of coaches understanding movement or I don't, I don't think you use biomechanics but just understanding like how you can discover 
these attractors. So if I'm a coach who, yeah, I don't know. I, I was a, um, a history major, like, <laughs> and I coach and which lots of coaches, right. We have these different backgrounds. Like, how do I learn this? How do I get a better understanding? So I can be aware of the attractors in my sport. I guess I'm going to throw a, a bone to Franz Bosch here. I would say his books, I would say motor learning textbooks, watching other sports, noticing similarities and movement patterns. And I've, I've brought this up to coaches in the past, be it what we're talking about now with cueing attractors externally or the constraints of approach to differential learning. Well, I'm a tennis coach. Why would I watch track and field? Because movement is movement. And coaches will say, they'll go to these conferences or they'll hear podcasts like we're doing and they'll say, y'all are just overcomplicating coaching. Actually, we're not. Coaching's always been complicated. We've just for the longest time, because nobody's ever questioned it, we've had the luxury of oversimplifying it to the detriment of athletes. This stuff is complicated for a reason, because movement is complicated and coaching is complicated. I like that. I think we're going to start a new um, coach education. Uh, it's going to uh, ruffle some more feathers, but yeah, maybe we should start something. Oh, I guess that's part of the goal of this is maybe ruffle some feathers and have lots of coach education. Uh, I'm wondering, did we, I don't know if Andy, anybody, do, did we cover the topic? Is there things we we missed that need to be said? I'm sure we missed a ton. Yeah. But I think we got a, <laughs> we at least got a good start, at least okay. as far as our own levels of expertise regard, because it's hard to, uh, it's hard to compare with Franz Bosch and uh, his, uh, his approach. Yeah. So the main message is read some, go read Franz. Yes. Yeah, I, I know that sounds silly, but I really think that that's something that is probably, he's probably a person, at least in our country, um, who's a little undervalued. Um, I think it seems like he's pretty appropriately valued other parts of the world, but um, I mean, he, his work is, is really important. And I think he, it can be difficult to understand at times, but um, I think it's, it's uh, something that feels pretty applicable um, which a lot of times, you know, I don't think he claims to be an academic personally. I, I mean, Andy, you know better than I would, but I know for, for our staff, um, that's, uh, project number one in the off season, starting in December, we're going to go through, uh, his two, I know the two main books, um, the speed and agility, and then this, you know, strength conditioning one, um, we're going to do both of those. And our strength coach is going to read it. We're going to look for ways that we can upgrade our, our skill development, package or whatever you'd call it through his ideas. Um, but I just, I, I think his, he's probably somebody, John, you got to figure out how to get him on the, the podcast because he's too intimidated. Yeah, he's so good. And I think <laughs> he, the material he he's speaking as two and four coaches. Um, and that is something that sometimes I know we're all guilty of the, the academic stuff can get lost. Uh, it can in translation a little bit. I think for him, his, his measuring stick is uh, not the outcome of studies. It's the outcome of athletes and uh, the outcome of coaches. And so, yeah, I think that that's the main takeaway is there's a Titan in this industry that has uh, really familiarized themselves with both the theoretical and applied stuff as it re relates to fluctuators and attractors, just uh, go straight to the source and uh, read his material, get familiar with it. It'll be hard. And just like coaching said, or just like Andy said, not coaching, <laughs> just like Andy said, coaching is, is tough uh, because it is complicated and complex. And so, um, yeah, I think if you want to be good at it, get familiar with complex stuff. And, and in this case, I think Franz's stuff is the right stuff to get familiar with. Which book is, would you say is the most accessible 
which which one would you start with if you're recommending Andy would know coach? better I've only read uh the strength conditioning one there were some challenging parts uh but it's it is accessible if you're willing to you know not be a baby about it they're accessible stuff I haven't read the speed and agility one uh, Andy you can speak to that yeah you can't go wrong with either one there, there's, there's not necessarily they don't run sequentially as in you don't need to read one and then read the other they're tough though so anybody that wants to get into them you're in for a wild ride yeah but they don't use words like parsimonious right it's a little more a little more straightforward okay all right all right take it easy take it easy I was, like i said i was journalism man hey, I, I that's all that. i got that was awesome cool all right well this is great great to connect with you guys andy thanks for bringing this topic it'll be fun to experiment with and um and yeah learn more about so thanks a lot